Hello, and welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast that asks 13 questions of Colgate University community members. I'm your host, Daniel DeVries, and today we will be exploring a topic that I think most folks know about, but few really understand, and that is the national debt, and specifically how it works and how it impacts regular families in the United States. And to help us understand this $34 trillion topic, I am very excited to welcome to the studio two members of Colgate's economics department. We have department chair and the W. Bradford Wiley Professor of International Economics, Nicole Simpson, and assistant professor of economics, Rich Higgins. Simpson is an expert on macroeconomics, immigration, remittances, and the earned income tax credit. She holds a bachelor's in economics from the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota um, and a master's and PhD in economics from the University of Iowa. Higgins specializes in macroeconomics, monetary policy, and Bayesian econometrics. (laughs) He earned his bachelor's degree from Pennsylvania State University and his PhD from the University of Oregon. So welcome to the studio. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I'll just jump right into the questions, and I, I always like to start at the top. Um, how is the national debt in the United States measured and calculated? What is it? I guess, how, how, does, how does the nation come to this number? I'll take a first stab at that, and then Rich can fill in anything I've missed. Uh, so the debt is the accumulation of all of the government um, deficits, the federal government level of deficits and surpluses over the past many years. And of course, in the U.S., we've been running deficits nearly every year for the last several decades with a couple of exceptions around um, the year 2000. But other than that, we run annually a budget deficit, which means there's a shortfall between what the government collects in tax revenues and what it spends. And so that shortfall shortfall each year adds up and accumulates into our total debt level. And so when we're running deficit after deficit year after year, the debt is just going to continue to increase. And this goes back to the Revolutionary War, right? Is that the beginning of the national debt? I I would say that's the beginning. Uh, So you have... Essentially, in the the 19th century and 18th century, it's a matter of you have wars and then the deficit grows, uh, the debt grows uh, because you need to finance that war. And then uh, the debt starts to decline after that. And then uh, so if you look Revolutionary War, you have a a spike from that. And I guess that's the beginning. So the starting point is uh, a deficit in debt and then uh, it declines and then you see it grow um, during the Civil War. Then it declines and it grows again during the uh, during World War One, uh, Great Depression, and then it really spikes uh, after World War Two. Mm. And who holds this debt? Where is like uh, I imagine the United States borrows from all different sorts of places, mm-hmm. but uh, who who kind of keeps tabs on our budget and says that this is the money owed? Like who are we? Who is the United States paying back? Yeah. So every time the government, the federal government um, runs deficits, it has to finance it by issuing government bonds, T-bills, securities. And so the public, you know, broadly speaking, will hold and buy those bonds. And so the public is financing um, our own federal government deficit and hence debt, uh, but also other countries. And so, you know, the you know, about there's an equal, fairly equal distribution between um, how much domestic kind of the, the public domestically holds. That's a little bit larger. But then there's, of course, other countries. China and Japan are the largest holders as a country of our debt, of U.S. debt. And then, of course, the Federal Reserve holds some of that as well, our own central bank. And so uh, definitely we ourselves in our retirement accounts, individuals, households will hold on to that and buy up government debt, but also other countries, both the individual consumers in those countries, but their countries as well. How does the debt 
impact how the United States functions. I mean, it's currently about $34 trillion. I read something on the internet that was pretty wild. I have no idea if this is true or not, but a plane traveling at the speed of sound, trailing dollar bills <laughs> would take 14 years to drop off $1 trillion. So we're at $34 trillion. So what, what is the impact that that dollar figure has on the U.S., the economy, and how, our, how the nation functions? So there are a lot of different impacts that it has on – we tend to like to think about it uh, as economists, not as a dollar figure, but relative to GDP. That way we can we can compare it over, over time a little bit more cleanly um, because, you know, like for a person um, – $100,000 in debt to someone that's making $50,000 a year is quite a bit different than Elon Musk having that that same debt. Uh, and so the the dollar figure matters on, uh, you know, a number of ways that it matters. One is it affects interest rates. Uh, and so if you have the government uh, running a large deficit and uh, borrowing a lot, that's going to push up interest rates. There's a lot of debate about how much. Uh, actually, I have an honors student right now that's working on that uh, oh. that very question. It's, it's a little early for, for results to, <laughs> for me to have anything to say. But uh, it's an interesting question because if those interest rates go up, there's this concern about crowding out uh, that government spending is going to crowd out private investment. Um, and that's going to have an impact on the economy because the capital stock will be lower and that will lower your output and, and economic growth. And so that's one of the effects that you have to worry about with it. Uh, and it's something that we think about a lot in, in macro. Um, you know, one of the things that we've noticed is that in the last few years, interest rates have gone up. At the same time, the deficit has gone up substantially. A lot of other things have happened as well, right? Uh, so we had COVID, and then we had the inflation that came after COVID that helped push up interest rates. It's not clear if we're gonna gonna stay in this type of world. But 30-year U.S. government bonds in 2019, they were about two and a half percent. Now they're about 4.2, 4.3%, 4 depending on the month that you look at. They've changed a lot more than they typically do. Uh, and so that's one of the, the concerns is higher interest rates and that crowding out of, of government uh, by the government of private investment. And another thing I'll just add is that in COVID, you know, we all remember major fiscal stimulus. There was two rounds. It ended up being seven or eight trillion dollars of stimulus, which is, you know, a big share of our economy. Uh, and so, you know, there's a concern among some macroeconomists. This is a debate, right? How okay. is the debt level too high? What's the highest we can tolerate? Um, you know, are we at this kind of new level all of a sudden in the last 10, 15 years that, you know, we're kind of an unprecedented territory in terms of, as a, as Rich mentioned, a percent of GDP were, were way above what we had been, you know, even 15 years ago. And so um, so this is definitely up for debate in the in the profession, even among similarly trained macroeconomists. Um, but there is a sense that in COVID, we were able to kind of borrow to finance large expenditures to, to help households uh, and the U.S. economy kind of, you know, deal with the repercussions of people not being able to work, you know, collect paychecks, some industries folding if we weren't didn't have government intervention. And so um, there's a sense that maybe, you know, if the debt level gets too high, that the U.S. government couldn't pull those huge triggers when needed. And in the case of emergency like COVID or a massive recession like the great financial crisis of, you know, 2007, 2008, if we're already at some kind of upper bound, are we going to be able to borrow more to finance right spending that we need to do in a recessionary period? And so, so there's concerns that among some that maybe, you know, we're already too high. Could we actually go even higher without major additional costs, like Rich said, higher interest rates and, hmm. and other things. Kind of, we're using up, right, this kind of reducing the fiscal space. I've heard that term used, like we have space to spend, but we need people to buy our debt. And at some point, will that stop happening? Yeah, I think that goes with my next question, which is, so who sets the limit? Is there a limit? Does the U.S. have like a platinum card with no limit? You're talking about how it feels like we're getting close, but nobody knows. So how does that work? So there is no limit. Okay. Uh, to a certain extent, the U.S. can 
borrow as much as they want and go into as much debt as they want. So, you know, one of the identities that we have is that if you're running a deficit, you can finance it in two ways. So one is you can issue more debt. And the other is that you can increase the monetary base. So the monetary base is currency and reserves. So essentially, you can increase the money supply. And that's one form of government liability, or it can be government debt. And the U.S. is issuing all of this debt in U.S. dollars, which is one of the benefits of being a country like the U.S. that has the world's reserve currency. It makes it easy to issue that debt. Um, and there are limits as far as, you know, there are uh, spending bills and things like that. There's a debt ceiling. Uh but to the extent beyond that, they can more or less, the government can do what it wants. And at some point, markets would say you can't do that. Uh, and where that point is has changed. So um, in the 90s, there were uh, what were known as uh, bond vigilantes, uh, where so at the start of the Clinton administration, they were increasing government spending and uh, bondholders were selling off their bonds. Uh, so as they did that, the interest rates on those bonds went up and the federal government responded to that by not increasing the money supply or not increasing the deficit by as much, cutting back on spending. Um, during the Great Recession and the response to that, uh, Bill Gross, who was no, who's known as the bond king, uh, was thinking this is going to happen again. Uh, PIMCO uh, sold off all of their uh, U.S. government bonds and the fund that he was managing, uh, and that completely blew up. It, the The interest rate didn't go up. Uh, there wasn't really any sort of response, and it was just it was a different game. Hmm. Uh, and one of the changes was that the Fed, the Federal Reserve, was buying massive amounts of bonds, and that's going to drive down those interest rates. Hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about who manages this? I imagine it's the Treasury Department or like – and how does it work? Do other parts of the government kind of send their checkbooks into the Treasury to kind of rectify everything in one big document? Hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's mostly the Treasury. This is yeah. their job, right? The, uh, every gov you know, every form of uh, federal level government spending and tax collection—that's the Treasury's mandate to pay the bills of the government, and that includes interest payments on debt, right? And so, so to that extent, and they're the ones um, issuing the bonds, right? Yeah. Yep. So that they are right, effectively the you know the architect of kind of paying the bills, issuing the bonds and collecting payments and then making additional payments on that debt. So so yes, it's them. And you mentioned about the the one this one of the levers the government can pull is increasing the amount of money that is in the system, right? So I've heard the 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 chatter about printing a, or minting a trillion dollar coin or something. Can you can you tell explain how that works? Is this is this a real thing? Uh, would it work or what's the problem with it? I uh, lots of questions. So, as far as I know, there isn't a trillion dollar coin somewhere, but <laughs> right. uh, they talk about they, it. They talk yeah. about it. There, there could be one, I guess. Uh, yeah. So there's a it's it's a little bit interesting that the Federal Reserve controls the paper money supply, and the Treasury controls the coins, oh. uh, and the Federal Reserve is quasi independent. Uh, if there is a government uh, influence to it. Um, and so they are not going to increase the money supply in response to uh, the government deficits. Uh, they, they're, they're not going to want to do that because of concerns of inflation. The Hypothetically, they could, but would lead to lots of yes. tons of inflation, right? Yeah. Countries like Argentina, where the central bank is pumping money into the printing money to mm -hmm. finance debt or deficits, right? Hyperinflation. And that erodes the value of the currency. It yeah. leads to kind of disaster, financial disasters for the country. And as soon as they did it, even if they did it on a minor scale, yeah. uh, relative to sort of the magnitudes that we're talking here, uh, they would lose credibility pretty much instantly. Mm -hmm. And then that would uh, cause people to expect higher inflation. The whole thing would just unravel 
pretty quickly, I would guess. Uh, so where this comes into play with the trillion dollar coin is that the Federal Reserve isn't going to essentially bail the government out when they don't pass a, a debt ceiling increase by increasing the paper bills that are out there. Uh, but the Treasury conceivably could come up with this trillion dollar platinum coin uh, <laughs> that would uh, would overcome this issue because the Treasury uh, is controlled by the government. Um, and so... Uh, you know, conceivably, the president could say, hey, let's mint that coin. Uh, and then you could use that to pay uh, for things. There are lots of reasons not to do that, <laughs> right. obviously. Right. It, it sounds like their prevailing wisdom is that it would be bad. Yeah, creditors wouldn't have value, right? The dollar would lose its strength in the, as the world reserve currency. People would get rid of, right, uh, U.S. government assets that they hold, right, sell it off very quickly. And so it could lead to almost an immediate kind of disaster, right? A vicious cycle of hmm. kind of unraveling of everything we've done over decades. Interesting. Yeah. And it would be really blurring that yeah. line between uh, the monetary policy and the fiscal policy, which would raise a lot of those concerns. Okay. Can you give some context um, as to how the U.S. debt compares to other countries. So are we a really weird outlier here in the U.S., or are we similar to a lot of other developed nations? Yeah, so uh, the OECD data on this, uh, so from from 2022, um, it has debt to GDP for essentially all high-income countries. And the average for that is about 89%. Uh, and the U.S. is at 144% for their measure. So there are lots of different ways for measuring each for, for measuring this. Uh, and so it's not, a, not necessarily a perfect measure, and you'll see others that are different. Um, and so it's above average, but not out of line. There are a lot of other high-income countries that are in that same ballpark. Uh, Japan, at is is pretty much at the extreme. They're at, they're at two hundred fifty four percent. Now I want to go into that really quickly. So you said so it's one hundred and forty four percent of GDP. So that is the overall debt compared to how much money the U.S. produces every year like, in a year. In, mm -hmm. Interesting. And you said Japan is higher. Two hundred fifty four percent. Wow. Okay. Two and a half times. So so I guess what is the impact of that? What does that do? So. For Japan, it's a different story because a lot of their debt is owned by people in Japan, uh, much more so than the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, so the U.S., it used to be that the majority of the debt was owned in the U.S. Uh, it still is the majority, but it's not the vast majority. It used to be over 70%. Now it's been below that for the last uh, few decades. So there's sort of a dependence on other countries. Uh, there's a political aspect to that. Um, but at the same time, there's a benefit to the U.S. from having all of this debt and financial markets that to be the world's reserve currency where everyone wants to use U.S. dollar bills, they need to have risk-free assets that they can hold on to that are denominated in dollar bills. Uh, and U.S. government debt is perfect for that. Uh, and so if we had zero debt, uh, that would probably not be beneficial to us in that way. Um, but having a lot, there are potential concerns from sort of international politics. Uh, also concerns from, is this something that's uh, helping to explain why we have such a large trade deficit as, as well? Which makes you wonder. So if one of these nations, say, we got into a squabble with and they called in all their debt, say they're one of our largest debt holders, what happens then? Hasn't really happened. <laughs> so we don't know. But it depends on who that country is and what share they hold and if the U.S. can reissue the debt quickly on markets. If it, if I assume they would be able to, assuming everything else is normal kind of in the U.S. and, and you know, nothing strange going on in the U.S. But, you know, so far they're, they're, we haven't run out of capacity in terms of finding um, people to buy U.S. debt. And so that's a good thing for the U.S. So it, I think it depends on the specific situation in which country, if it were China, which is, of course, the largest holder, then, you know, couldn't the U.S. quickly kind of find other uh, countries or the public to, to buy up that debt? Um, it's just a matter of how efficient markets work, how quickly 
and you know changing the prices on debt products too to adjust for market conditions. Makes me wonder, like, could citizens of the U.S. make up for that? Is there enough capacity? So, say a large uh, holder of our debt were to, to drop out, say it was China, um, is there the capacity uh, in the country to make up for that? So that's a good question. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there are there have been signs over the last couple of years of some mm-hmm. increasing difficulties in, in treasury markets, uh, less liquidity in them than there had been before. So making it on uh, so it's the world's most liquid asset market is what you hear all the time. Uh, and that's still true, but it's maybe not as liquid as, as it had been before. So what that means is that there are times where it is difficult to find someone to buy your bond uh, when you're trying to sell it. And so um, it's an interesting question. Uh, there, and it's not clear sort of what extent uh, the rest of the world would be able to take that on. Now, uh, the counter to that is that if China backs out, interest rates conceivably are going to go up and the value of the bonds that they're holding are going to go down. Uh, and if they're trying to sell off their bonds, they're probably going to sell them at a loss uh, as they do that. So um, it's it's not something that uh, is going to be without cost to whoever the other counterparty is if they're uh, trying to use that tool as sort of weaponize it, I guess, would be what I would say. And the other part of that response, I would say, Dan, is that you know U.S. households um, were very good consumers. We're not great net savers. Um, of course, there's inequality on in that. We know about the wealth distribution, how unequal it is. And so, of course, those at the very top are able to accumulate huge sums of, you know, wealth uh, and save. But, you know, by and large, the average U.S. household is not a very big saver. And so in order to buy up debt, you have to have excess of capacity. That is, you're consuming less um, relative to your income. And so people would have to really make, I think, at the household level decisions that would be different than what they have in the past, which is in the U.S., we have access to credit, right? Not every household does, but most households do. You can buy a home, a car with relative ease, depending on the interest rates and your risk, you know, conditions. And so, I, but if the U.S. public were asked or have to pick up kind of some of the slack of world markets, right, we would have to become much bigger savers and much smaller consumers. And of course, GDP in this country grows. I always say, you know, Americans are good at spending our way out of recessions uh, because we have access to credit, right, Right. fairly cheap credit and credit markets that work most of the time very well. And so, you know, we're able to do that. But that's something I think a lot of us take for granted. And that if we were asked to having to buy up bonds, we're going to have to save more. And that will come at some macro at some level, some macroeconomic cost. Now, of course, savings is good for the long run. It's not great for the economy in the short run if we save more. But in the long run, that's better. People will have saved for retirement. There'll be a better situation later in life. So there's trade-offs, right? It's all about costs and benefits, short run versus, you know, short run gains versus long run costs and vice versa. And so, um, you know, I think that's something always to keep in mind that we're not very good at saving as a country mm-hmm. as a whole. Of course, there's inequities and inequalities in that, but on average. Are there things that the government has done through the years to reduce the debt? What what has been effective and could it be done again? Or were these moments in time that were special and kind of had their own unique circumstances? We haven't done a good job of this at all. I mean, the, the graphs will show that, you know, effectively since the Great Recession of 07, 08, you know, the debt's exploded. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. Um, you know, we came out of the Great Recession, took a long time for us to recover fully. So output, um, employment and income, right, were fairly not, you know, negatively growing, but stagnant. And so tax revenues were down there. We've also had pretty significant tax cuts at the federal level. Um, and rarely does is that combined with spending decreases. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's hard to balance your checkbook or, or the federal <laughs> government budget if you cut taxes but don't cut spending alongside of that. And of course, every politician, right, you know, this is the trade-offs. Even, you know, both sides of the aisle, Republicans, Democratic presidents, and Congresses have passed sizable tax cuts without really big uh, reductions or any reductions in total government spending. And so so you continue to do that. Eventually, budget deficits continue to grow, and that adds to then our government debt. And so so I think the politicians, right, 
would have to be really honest with themselves. If this is a top priority and this is where every few months and we're probably going to get another one in March and April, will the government shut down again because we're going to hit a limit and they're going to have to get their ducks in a row and decide what you know the priorities are. But um, at least in the last two decades, we haven't seen any tax increases or sizable reductions in government spending across the board. Now, there's been pockets where there's been spending reductions here and there, but not in the aggregate level. Combine that with aging populations, more expensive Medicare, um, more expensive Social Security, right? All of these are the bills the government has to pay, mm-hmm. right? And so those expenditures continue to go up. So staying fairly kind of low, slower growing economy, kind of uh, the Great Recession, tax cuts and spending increases to finance our, our aging population. It kind of leads to the fiscal mess we're in right now. And I would imagine we're facing <clears throat> a larger mess uh, due to um, aging of baby boomers, right? I mean, yeah. you have this giant pocket. And COVID, and COVID expenditures. We have yeah. two massive spending bills, right, in COVID that we'll have to finance over generations. Has anyone proposed anything, uh, any political leaders or, you know, people within the Treasury or anything? Have they proposed anything that could make a big difference? Or is it something that you think they're still trying to figure out? So there have been proposals that would make a difference, but I don't think anyone has proposed anything that would make a big difference. Mm-hmm. On, I, I think that anything that would make a big difference is just so politically unpalpable for the general population that uh, it just isn't going to get acted on. Uh, Probably not until uh, until things get much worse than they are now. Uh, it's maybe a bit pessimistic, but uh, given the experiences that I've had as an adult, uh, seeing what the government uh, has done with deficits, uh, I'm not too optimistic for it. Uh, I mean, based on the projections, uh, government revenues are... are projected to be pretty stable and expenses are just going to keep going up. Uh, A lot of that is due to um, increases in healthcare costs, so Medicare, Medicaid. A little bit from Social Security. uh, And for Social Security, there has been some discussion of ways of uh, correcting the imbalance there. Uh, and I think that there's some political will for that because of the popularity of Social Security. Um, but fixing that is going to have a minor impact compared to uh, the rest of it. Uh, so for Social Security, there's been discussion of uh, there's a cap on the taxes for it. Um, And uh, so if you remove that cap, you can get more tax income that's going to go directly to Social Security, uh, making the inflation adjustments less generous, uh, increasing the age of retirement. uh, All of these things are going to help with that. Um, But uh, two things that that's not going to help that are more important are those healthcare costs uh, and interest payments on debt are going to increase. So uh, right now they're between one and a half and two percent of of GDP. Uh, the Congressional Budget Office office projects those to be on about six point seven percent in twenty fifty three, uh, and so we're talking between 5 and 10% of GDP going to paying off the debt at that point. And that's just going to increase over time if you continue to have a, a, large, de- a large deficit. So <clears throat> you have to pardon my ignorance here, and it'll be very clear. I'm an English major and um, not an economist, but um, I think about interest rates. And there's been a lot of talk lately about increasing rates and you know how that hurts the, the housing market. But I know when my parents bought their home in the 70s, they were paying double-digit interest. Why was it so high then? How did it come back down? And is that connected in any way to the debt or completely separate? Yeah, so in the 70s and 80s, we had fairly large oil price shocks, macro shocks, where oil prices went up very dramatically, very quickly, mostly due to OPEC embargoes in the Middle East. 
tensions there. So um, that led to huge price increases across the board. And back then, oil was a much larger, had a much larger impact on the macro economy uh, because more industries were more oil reliant than they are today. Um, As a result, we had double digit levels of inflation year after year for many years in a row. And so what the Federal Reserve's job then in in that environment and still today is to, to raise rates to try to slow down uh, that inflation. And so so we had higher interest rates, many increases in order to fight off that very high inflation. And it, you know, it took time, but we eventually got to a point where the Fed uh, was pretty comfortable with the, the interest rate range. Nowadays, the Fed has an, more or less an implicit target of about 2% of inflation. Of course, we're not there yet. Again, out of COVID, coming out of COVID, we had for kind of different types of supply shock, supply chain disruptions, which led to high increases in prices, again, across the board in many industries. And so the Fed has been raising rates to fight off that and that COVID kind of induced inflation. Um, there's a question about when the Fed will will stop <laughs> raising rates or will they soon? We'll find out today or tomorrow. They're meeting now. Um, you know, what their, their stance is as of right now. Uh, my sense, my guess is that, you know, inflation, it does seem to be tapering off. Um, and that the Fed probably won't have to increase rates anytime soon again, unless things change for different reasons, mostly due to wars, right, in different parts of the world. Um, and that, you know, we're going to hopefully gradually get back to that kind of 2%-ish range of inflation that the Fed's really after. Um, but that's going to take some time. And so we haven't seen that level of inflation that we did earlier. It was a different type of shock. The Fed, I think, has gotten better. Some will claim that the Fed's better now at kind of, you know, finding the right set of policies that has a different toolbox than it did, you know, 15 years ago. The Fed's been much more creative in using its its tools uh, and developing new tools in the midst of the great uh, financial crisis. And so, so you know, I think we've seen inflation go up, but it's it's starting to level off, and hopefully that will lead to eventually lower, slightly lower interest rates. But that's still up for debate how low the Fed will go and when and how and how markets respond to that. Hmm. And having those higher inflation rates to go along with those higher interest rates uh, in the 70s made it so if you look at a real interest rate, it's not quite as high as what you would think given the high nominal interest rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that's part of it. Uh, I think there's also a little bit of a psychological effect that interest rates were so low, like you could get a 30-year mortgage with a 3% interest rate. Uh, And so when you see 8%, 9% for a mortgage rate, that is sort of shocking to people. Uh, And so I think there's there's a little bit of an effect of that. Um, If there are strange demographic effects on housing markets at the moment as well. Uh, And so it has made it so that... uh, housing market certainly is an, an interesting uh, place uh, the last few years. Hmm. What is the impact? I, I hear a lot about countries where you hear about countries um, either abandoning the dollar or um, or talking about abandoning the dollar. Uh, it, it, does this happen a lot? I guess what is – this is I presume for trade purposes, right? Um, what happens if a country abandons using the dollar for their um, – I guess, is it their trade? Yeah, so most of the trade around the world, especially for oil, but a lot of the trade in general, uh, even if there is no one from the U.S. involved, uh, that trade's going to happen in U.S. dollars. Uh, it's just what the world has gravitated to uh, for the last, uh, I don't know, 70 years or so. Uh, the U.S. replaced the U.S. dollar replaced the British pound. Uh, and so lots of places want to get away from that um, for political reasons, for economic reasons, for practical reasons. Um, but yeah, there, there doesn't seem to be a great alternative at the, at the moment. Uh, and it's not clear when there will be uh, a great alternative. Yeah, when the euro was introduced in the late 90s, you know, there was a lot of talk like, would this replace the dollar as the world was? And it just hasn't happened, of course. Euros are very widely traded, accepted, right? Trade, you know, issued bonds in euros, but it still hasn't come close to replacing the dollar's role in the world economy. Could crypto replace it? You guys are going to throw me out of this room before the end. Of it. I, I I'm skeptical of that. Uh, something will replace the U.S. dollar at some point. It's not going to last forever as as the world's reserve currency, but. Um, 
I, I, I have lots of doubts about crypto, uh, but as I tell my students in money and banking, uh, if I had bought Bitcoin uh, when I first started teaching this class and was bashing crypto then, uh, I would be a lot wealthier now. Uh, <laughs> I bet. Yeah. Um, so how does the reserve currency being the reserve currency for most of the world benefit the U.S.? It's stable. It's predictable. People know the returns. It's a safe asset, right? So if you have cash, let's say you're a manager of a massive fund and you want it in something safe with a small, you know, a small but predictable return, right? It's the it's the place to go. And hmm. single-handedly, that's where investors kind of turn to for safe, effectively riskless assets because the U.S. has yet to kind of at least in contemporary macro times, ever default or consider defaulting on its debt. So, mm -hmm. um, so I don't think it's going to change and, anytime soon. And for the U.S. government, uh, it makes it so it's a lot easier to issue debt. Uh, that's one of the benefits uh, to it. Um, for a number of years, the U.S. essentially bought things with U.S. dollars without having to give anything else in return for it uh, because people want U.S. dollars. Uh, and so there are benefits like that. It also helps um, with reducing the impact of um, foreign shocks on U.S. inflation uh, because you're going to be buying that Chinese-made product in U.S. dollars. And so the shocks that happen in China aren't going to feed through into that price because it's just coming through in dollars anyways. And so um, it makes it so you're insulated from a lot of those international shocks because you buy something that's made in Australia, you're buying it in U.S. dollars. And so there's less of an impact of um, sort of price fluctuations in Australia feeding back uh, to us in the U.S. Now, that means that the effects, the price shocks in the U.S. are going to get felt. They're going to get felt elsewhere. Yeah. Uh, and and in sometimes in strange ways. So um, when the Federal Reserve started uh, discussing their uh, their tapering of their quantitative easing, where they had been buying all of these assets, they started to discuss how. Uh, they were going to slow down the rate at which they were purchasing that. They didn't. Um, they didn't explain it very well at the beginning. It was their first time doing this, uh, and the market had what was referred to as the taper tantrum, uh, and interest rates fluctuated a lot because of that. Uh, and you know, it's sort of this like example that I use in class to to discuss the way that central banks communicate. Uh, and, you know, it's it's sort of the silly thing, but it actually costs emerging market economies billions of dollars uh, because of this fluctuation because they feel those effects because uh, they're selling their bonds in U.S. dollars sometimes. Um, their trade is happening in U.S. dollars. And so, uh, you know, there's, there's an expression of... Uh, when the U.S. catches a cold, the rest of the world sneezes, or mm -hmm. something like that, mm -hmm. and that's sort of the way that it that it works. And it's not the reverse as much because we're <laughs> we don't feel the other shocks, as Rich said, mm -hmm. as much as they feel our shocks. So who's keeping track of all this? Like, if the if the government just wanted to, you know, pay off a contractor or something with a check and say, yeah, that's that's U.S. <laughs> currency, and they cash it at a bank. I mean, who's to know that they don't have enough money in the bank? Who, who keeps track of this? That's the treasury's job. Right? Yeah. We have very good accountants in this country, right? <laughs> We're keeping track of all that. You know, and they're accountable to Congress. I mean, okay. I think at the end of the day, the right, the treasury reports and is accountable to Congress, right? Because that's who's, you know, uh, uh, defines and describes the, the fiscal kind of stimulus, fiscal payments, fiscal, right? All the fiscal components of the, the U.S. government is managed by the treasury and, and is accountable to the Congress. So... What are the other international um, impacts on the U.S. debt outside of waging war or um, – I, I guess that would be the big one. But, um, you know, in what ways do other economies impact our debt or, do, or not at all? 
So there's international yeah. trade, yeah. yeah. So we we say it, we save less, uh, but our investment has stayed about the same as a percentage of mm -hmm. of GDP, and uh, so that gap uh, on the financial side of things, that gap has to get equalized on the trade side of things. So um, if you're borrowing on net, that means that you're also going to be a net importer. Uh, and so there's that international aspect of things where part of the explanation for why we're a net importer is because of this uh, large deficit that the, the government is running. Uh, and then on the international side of things as well, we're borrowing a substantial amount from them. Uh, so Ben Bernanke had um, this discussion, this term of the, the global savings glut, where uh, a lot of economies that were becoming wealthier, higher income, were saving a lot as well. And that saving has to go somewhere. And the US was doing a lot of that borrowing. And so um, by the rest of the world having the surplus that they're willing to lend to us, uh, it makes it easier for us to finance that deficit uh, because interest rates aren't going to increase uh, because of that. They're going to keep those interest rates down. Uh, and so there's, there's that impact. Now, on the flip side of that, there's an argument that maybe it reduces the U.S.'s uh, political clout uh, by having this large debt uh, because there's less than the that people think the U.S. can do uh, internationally because of that. Uh, and that's probably true. There probably is less appetite to take on debt for international yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, historically, you know, prior to World War II, we would find, you know, in World War II and the previous wars, we financed our debt through, or we financed our wars by issuing government debt. By we war bonds. Yeah. And we're not yeah. explicitly doing that anymore. It's not like we're saying, well, we're going to go fight in Iraq, right? And then we're going to issue all these bonds to, to finance it. Effectively, we are because we're running short, you know, shortages, <laughs> deficits. And so we have to finance it somehow. But there's not that direct kind of, we're going to war. And so we're going to issue these war bonds to pay it, you know, to, to, to get the cash to finance the war. And so so I think, you know, going to war or being part of global conflicts, right, is extremely costly to the U.S. And so, you know, but the financing of that is very much muddled right now, right? We have to borrow to finance, but from whom, you know, the question now is like, if China invades Taiwan, is, you know, is China going to finance us to go to war with them? Right, I mean, right, you know, it's, right. a, it's the question macroeconomists and everybody's been asking, like, how is that going to work? Will that work? You know, so we're a little bit, you know, the global conflicts definitely are raising some of these really important questions and who our trading partners are and how reliant we are on certain economies. And that was, you know, of course, heightened in COVID too. So so I think the U.S. has to start talking about this in a real way to, to think through what that looks like and how much we want to be in these global conflicts and how we're going to finance them. And is it on, it's going to be on the backs of future generations of Americans. Hmm. You folks, you know, look closely at this kind of thing. So I'm curious your thoughts as far as like, are you worried at this point, or is it is it something where we have a lot further to go before we should really be worried? I think it depends who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, this morning I showed, you know, my students and I were talking about this, and I said, don't lose sleep over this. Like, I don't want you to go home and stress out about, you know, the U.S. debt level being, <laughs> you know, more than 100% of our GDP. It is an unprecedented territory, as we've said. We don't really know. I you know, the, the feeling now is there is still some capacity to borrow more. We're, we're not at some upper bound. The upper bound has changed, though, as Rich has said, right? It used to be something below 100% of GDP, and now we're well above that. And so um, it's a little bit of a moving target, and we have yet to kind of face, you know, really have to face kind of the music in terms of not having creditors to, to buy up our, our bonds. So, um, you know, it's we don't know. Um, is it something I lose sleep over? No, but it, I definitely think, you know, I've been very frustrated with the political situation, no matter who's in office and that, you know, economists give really good, I think, policy recommendations that are, aren't often taken into consideration when it comes to fiscal issues because of winning elections. Mm -hmm. the, they, they're just worried about winning the next election. And so nobody's going to win by saying we're going to raise taxes and cut government spending, one sure. or both of those. And so, you know, the, I think the public has to kind of demand this of our politicians. You know, that has not been happening at all in the last many, you know, several years in this country. So it's been definitely frustrating. There are some things we could be doing to ease the burden of our gener future generations. And we just have had no political interest in doing that in the last maybe 10, 15 years. 
in 2019, my answer would have been different. <laughs> oh? In, in 2019, I probably would have said, no, I'm not, not concerned. Uh, at some point, I, I would have said at some point we need to do something about this because the projections don't look great. Um, but they didn't look anywhere close to as bad as they do now. Uh, and so um, I think my concern is if if we continue on the path that we're on right now and in the year 2035, we have something that looks like COVID again as far as economic impact and we feel like – or even the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And we feel like we need to have a stimulus package as a response to it. I'm not sure how much – room there is for us at that point. Mm. Uh, and, and my concern with this is that when it comes to the ability to borrow, everything is great until it's not, typically. Uh, <laughs> it's not something where you usually like see this coming yeah. slowly and things are slowly inching up. It's interest rates are low and then uh, a year later they're high. So if you look at um, like Greece in 2012, uh, 2011, 2009, you know, the interest rates for the previous decade had been pretty stable. And then they go from uh, single digits up to 25% in a year and a half. Uh, and so my concern is that nonlinear aspect of, of, uh, of how these types of uh, problems tend to work out, mm. um, where you don't have a problem until you do, and then it's a crisis when it happens. Uh, and so that's what I worry about. It doesn't keep me up at night, uh, but uh, there are it, – it's gone to the point where, where I'm concerned, um, not – to the point where I'm worried, I guess. Uh, and I guess my concern is not this, where we are right now, but where we are right now and the direction that we're headed. Mm. Uh, where if we were in a good spot right now and we were headed in a poor direction, then that would be something that would be like, well, I'm not concerned about that, but we're in a not a great spot at the moment. I would say we're in a bad spot uh, with the deficit at the moment. Um, and it's not improving. It's just getting worse. So you've made it to question 13. Congratulations. <laughs> um, try to ask something a little bit fun here. But say you're given the keys to Congress and you're in charge of coming up with some grand plan to either reduce the national debt or bring it into line where it's sustainable over the long run. You know, it's not going to be gone, but improved in such a way that we don't have to worry about running out of money or borrowing options. What would you do? You want to take the first crack? <laughs> <laughs> so I think economists have really good ideas. Um, economists tend to try to, you know, I think the, the average macroeconomist really tries to stay clear of the political pressures, right, of saying what is kind of the right thing to say at the right moment in a political setting. I think you have to, cut, you know, raise taxes. You have to cut spending. Now, where the rubber hits the road is what taxes do you raise? Do you raise them for everything, for everybody, for some, for other, you know, not for some? Do you cut spending across the board? Do you target certain sectors, right? Is it defense spending you cut? Is it our transfer system, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, right? These are all huge political questions. The economics are you have to raise some or all taxes and you have to cut some or all spending. That's only still going to get us to like zero budget balance, right? Zero doesn't reduce our debt. It just prevents it from growing, okay? So if we want to really reduce our debt, we have to run surpluses. We saw in the early 2000s that even a couple years of small surpluses do go somewhere in helping to reduce the debt level, okay, debt. So, but we do, we have to run surpluses for several years of sizable magnitudes, and that would re rely or depend on the economy doing very well, incomes growing at steady rates, and that tax revenues are increasing and are more to cover, more than, you know, just covering our, our expenses. So that's a really hard thing to run on, right, and win any election. Yeah, I don't think you're getting elected. Yeah, no, but, yeah, so this is why economists don't get involved, because they don't want... <laughs> 
people know what they have to do. Sure. They don't yeah. want to hear it, and right. they certainly don't want to do it. And so this is what's been very frustrating as an economist, not only on issues of you know, national importance like the federal debt level, but on all sorts of issues that economists and lots of people have know the right answers. And the politicians, I think, know actually the right answers. Sure. They're just not willing to do the hard work and to, to educate the public and to make the big, hard decisions on who's going to pay for this. Hmm. And the difficult thing with it is that when we're talking about raising taxes, it has to be across the board almost. It, it's not something that you can just tax really high income earners. Uh, it has to be something that is going to be felt down to the middle class or you have to really reduce spending. And to really reduce that spending, it's probably not going to be enough reducing defense spending. You're going to have to reform entitlements, reduce spending on Social Security or Medicare and Medicaid, whatever the the composition of that. Uh, and so there's, there's no political way out of it um, from the right or the left. And it takes a lot of unity within the government to make that happen. You have to be able to have a compromise uh, and that seems pretty unlikely at, at the oh, moment. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> I mean, the the other thing that that we could we could have, and uh, this is even more difficult, um, would be to figure out what policy we should implement in order to grow the economy at a much faster rate over mm. the next fifty years. Uh, because if we could do that. Uh, then we would be able to have our revenues increase because our tax base is increasing, uh, and uh, we would be able to shrink that debt to GDP because you have more revenues and also your GDP is growing. Um, I I don't know if we had a if we had a policy that we knew could raise the growth rate of GDP by a percentage point, uh, we would hopefully be putting that into place. Uh, and but, we're already the fastest rich country, you know, growing, the fastest growing rich country of the world year mm -hmm. after year. You know, there's blips, of course, but in general, we grow much faster and higher rates than most of our peers, right, in Europe and Japan and Australia. So that would be hard. Yeah. Possibly, you know, magic wand kind of stuff. Yeah, and, <laughs> and figuring out the healthcare system to, to reduce those yeah. costs. Uh, I, but... That's not enough on its own, mm -hmm. uh, and that is a very tricky question in general, and it's probably even more difficult thinking about it politically. And so there are no easy answers. We know what some of the answers need to be, um, but it's not easy to get that done, and it won't be pleasant. <laughs> well, that was 13. Uh, thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Rich. This is really great. I think very informative. I learned a lot. Um, if uh, anyone listening has any additional questions, uh, feel free to send them to 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. And until next time, keep asking questions. 13 is a production of the Colgate University Office of University Communications. Executive producer, L. Hazel Jack. Producer and host, Daniel DeVries. Audio production by Brian Ness. Learn about all the happenings at Colgate by visiting colgate.edu, colgatemagazine.com, and colgateresearchmagazine.com.